You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Whoever's just joining us, grab yourselves a chair and um, join the circle. I'm Danielle Hromek, um, and uh, I just want to start saying we're all on country, wherever we are on this continent, and um, to start off always remembering that we're always on country wherever we step, and uh, stories and, and knowledge of countries are always here, even, even, if, even in these spaces there's still story, there's still knowledge. And it's always held in place. And knowledge holders and, and custodians share that with us. Come join. You, there's lots of seats. Um, we're talking about Indigenous curriculum here. And um, so I'm going to start off with Carol introducing herself and um, tell us about who you are. And then Mel will and then I will. Um, hi, everyone. My name's Carol Gosem. I'm a Jutabal Kambumara uh, woman from North Queensland. Uh, my traditional country is around uh, the Tully Rivers and Herbert Rivers in North Queensland. And I also am a lecturer at the University of Queensland. Um, I teach a subject called um, Indigenous architecture and also contribute to other subjects within the school history and theory and um, which is currently undergoing a new evolution and revolution at UQ and yes so that's it. Mel. Uh, yep so uh, my name is Mel Dodd I'm a uh, head of department at Monash School of Architecture, Department of Architecture, in fact, not a school. Um, uh, I have been uh, sort of in those sorts of leader positions for a while, so I'm actually quite fresh back in Australia after eight years spent at Central St Martins in London, uh, where I looked after a, pra a program called Spatial Practices, which was a department that wasn't calling itself architecture for various obvious reasons. So I guess that I've always been interested in, um, uh, I think I feel a slight imposter here today because uh, we're talking about indigenous uh, curriculum and indigenizing the curriculum and I feel like I'm only on just beginning on that journey but I've certainly got a lot to say about broader understandings of how we um, work on the gap between professional education in, in the academic setting and life beyond and how we've tended not to do that very well. So I'll bring some of those thoughts to maybe um, more specific things that Carol and Danielle have to say. Thank you both. Um, and I'm, I'm Danielle, I'm a Budawang woman of the Yuan Nation. That's um, the south coast of New South Wales is my country. I live on Gadigal lands. 
um, which is in the middle of Sydney, and uh, that's mainly where I work as well. Though we, um, I run a small practice, and I work at Sydney Uni um, as a professor of practice for this year. Um, and I've got a really specific project around um, indigenising the curriculum and looking at how um, we can bring together a whole bunch of um, strategies that are currently strategies into actual actual curriculum. Um, so, wish me luck. <laughs> um, Carol, I might start with you. Tell, tell us all about your work on indigenising curriculum, where it started and what you've been doing to date. Uh, yes, so at UQ we started mapping, I guess. Um, so I got a, uh, a teaching and learning grant, very tiny amount of money. Actually asked for a huge bucket of money and got um, <laughs> um, uh, a couple of drops of money. Um, and so what we decided to do is rebadge the project. So we went, our, our big vision shrunk um, dramatically and um, so what we thought needed to do was first of all map what is occurring um, not only within our school but also let's have a look at what's happening in other schools of architecture and could could we actually even look to international examples um, and we were aware of um, some colleagues who are in um, Canada who are doing amazing stuff um, and and look at their models. Um, how did how did they see their curriculum in architecture in schools of architecture that were entirely sort of centred on uh, First Nations, um, and and then so that was one thing. So we mapped, and we're still in the process of writing up that material. Um, and the other thing was not only mapping, but also could we sort of see where the gaps were in our curriculum, where the innovative, you know, we're always, I mean, innovation's a very common word that's thrown around, but were there, were there sort of, um, was there really good documentation um, of what's occurring? And um, are there new approaches, what, you know, looking at all the sort of terminology around sort of what was occurring, decolonisation, what did that actually mean um, in, in terms of how did it materialise into um, existing structures or were there new structures being made and courses and so forth. Um, and so that's one project. And the other one was um, looking at creating... Um, modules for students so that in the uh, engineering architecture and information technology faculty which I'm in could we have um, uh, three three basic modules that would inform students because we found when we talked to our colleagues in engineering um, who are doing all you know work in mining engineering, um, they're, they're sending engineers out on mining who are blowing up country and doing all sorts of really interesting things um, and, and, and thinking that they were being culturally sensitive and aware and consulting um, and, 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 and actually destroying country in the process without sort of um, including local traditional owners and so um, so they thought that they had some issues and they also had some issues in the information technology space in terms of conceptual spaces um, and and 
um, creating sort of gaming material that had Indigenous themes in it and so forth. So, so we, we found some um, other colleagues who were really interested in um, and demanding that we have um, basic modules for students. So first of all, get them a basic understanding of what um, Indigenous culture is and its, uh, and its impact and changes, um, but also concepts of country and so forth in one module. Um, then looking at students in terms of each of their, looking at really actual live case studies. So rather than being sort of a, a theoretical structure and a framework, look at examples from each of those disciplines, map them, create them and, and get them to examine them from an Indigenous um, perspective. And then we're going to... Um, I guess, test that with students to see how engaging that material is because we want it to be online and not sort of in-person taught and it's sort of, you know, a series of sort of modules that they work through. Um, but it became, we discussed with all of other uh, academics, should it be compulsory, not compulsory? Should they complete it within the first X number of weeks of term? Or, um, you know, so we had a whole discussion how long they should be, how how, how taxing should be, what should we sort of incentivise it, you know? Um, and so we ended up with uh, three modules and we're in the process of um, now... Uh, doing some filming, documenting case studies and um, getting that sort of content together. We still don't have those modules, but um, it's in, in process. So that's sort of two things um, that we're doing at UQ. Massive. Mm. Well, um, well, so maybe I, one thing I could talk about usefully might be what I'm building on or rather what's gone before me in at Monash because I think some interesting things have happened for, for our university in the last two to three years and um, one thing is that the, the sort of the overall Monash uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander framework put in place some people and this is one of my points is there's a representation um, to create Indigenous-led developed curricula. That, so put in place some people in each faculty, um, Indigenous associate deans. And in MADA, Monash Art Design and Architecture, we have Brian Martin. And that, so, so his position allowed um, a series of these broader pillars, one of which was increasing staff representation and developing curricula, uh, allowed him to start to put that into place um, in the last two years and that's what in a way I've walked into is Brian's work with Jacinta Elston who was our Indigenous um, PVC Indigenous and I think it's incredibly exciting partly because it's very smart and the, the pillars about representation of Indigenous academics has and growing PhD cohorts has been to me some of the most important things that begin to build your capacity to actually even think about that sort of um, curricula and development and Sarah is, is sort of a part of that. Uh, we're so lucky to have Sarah with us on that journey. Some of that journey comes from that, I think, from that strand, I'd be fair to say, wouldn't it? So, um, but one of the things that um, has been done is the development by Brian of a module called, and because we're an art design and architecture faculty, um, this is the, the module's called um, 
Indigenous Australian creative practices and ways of knowing, and it's broadly built around um, yeah the, the creative practice and understandings of creative practice, especially in response to uh, colonialization. So it's looking at all a whole range of sort of contested or responsive practices, and that's been shaped as running out in fine art and is to become core across the whole um, faculty. So that's a really interesting one which we've started to uh, try to understand because the faculty's 650 students, it's an Indigenous-led module um, and what I'm interested in is starting to work on how we do get, how we work on creative practices at the level of 650 students a year. So that's one, one initiative. Um, the second initiative, I guess, that I'm, again, I'm building on, not working on, is to, within that framework, and with Sarah, thinking about uh, the other path of professional education, which is um, the 2021 National Competencies, which um, I think Sarah and at least Bradley as well might have had, and others will have seen, which is a fantastic, again, incredibly sharp, smart, operational tactic to start to, to um, provide the sort of, uh, you described it the other day, Sarah, in a brilliant way, press the switch to make things happen. So eight, eight competencies that we can respond to. What's great is that we've got this bigger sort of um, framework and some of the responses might come through the core module. Some of the responses will be much more holistically embedded and inserted and so what we're doing at the moment and Sarah's leading on this is working through a curriculum review N not as great to hear about Carol's your your audit and mapping some of that is an audit and mapping and working out where we can put stuff I imagine also what will come out of it is very proactive new things and um, those might be quite unsettling and sometimes quite anarchic is my sense because ultimately as I said before, my fundamental thought about architectural education is it's unbelievably conservative uh, and has all sorts of strands and traditions that we need to sort of kick open if we're going to genuinely look at Indigenous curriculum or indigenising the curriculum in a way that's meaningful and isn't just about a history theory module or, yeah, something like that. Mm, you've, it's interesting. You've both spoken about a, a, a specific module that or modules that seem to speak to um, the curriculum that's indigenous or is, and is, or is indigenous led from a you know from a starting point. Do you feel like because um, my next question is about where do you start? Because um, I guess you guys have come here to find to start to talk about that stuff. Like where do you start here? How do you start doing this work? Is that is that where you would start, or do you start somewhere else? Do you mean where do you start in terms of the... Indigenising. Where do you start with the indigenising curriculum? Yeah, I, I guess, you know, when you come from uh, UQ and the school and it has a sort of big history in engaging with Indigenous people, I think the biggest thing to overcome is complacency, that we've already been doing a great job and we, you know, everyone else should be looking at us. And, um, and I think... Um, where there is sort of, um, and it's always led by 
you know, it's always led by others, you know, so it sort of relieves others of really being quite reflective about your own practices and your own teaching and, and, um, and or the way that you run studio or, um, or what things are included in studio. And sometimes that, you know, comes down to methods and processes. Um, but I think, I think, you know, are we trying to approach it and having a sort of a very high level sort of whole of school strategy? I'm not quite sure <laughs> about that, um, you know, and... and um, are we looking for, um, you know, other than sort of doing things that are quite sort of obvious, you know, where where we're talking about sort of, you know, studios that may be doing sort of work um, and not sort of even have any understanding of Indigenous history of place, you know, um, or doing sort of, you know, revisioning of regional towns and not sort of totally ignoring Indigenous... Um, histories of those places. I think I think we were, we were trying to aim higher, but I think um, I think I think at UQ we we really did. I personally struggled with um, you know just just starting with tinkering, and and I think I think I thought it was sort of important for us to sort of um, look at what what not only we, what we were doing. Um, but what sort of other content is. But, you know, I think what we found in the process is how difficult it is to get that information because it's embedded within ECPs. And some of that is public, and, and but some of it is actually... There's actually much more subtle things that are occurring. And should we sort of look at just the really quite big, obvious things and map that and then sort of come to a summary and a conclusion about that and then sort of work out... Um, you know, what is our vision for the future and how do we take all the staff along on that process? And I think at UQ what we were trying to do is because we're in this sort of um, faculty, there, there are sort of quite obvious gaps in, in, in other sort of disciplines that sit within our faculty and sometimes it's quite obvious, you know, to look at these really quite glaring gaps um, and feel like architecture has something to offer to that too. So I think it, we, we, we did discuss that and I thought... Um, and then you also have, you know, the, the same thing. You have these quite, you know, confined timeframes, very limited resources, limited time and availability and, um, and we're trying to achieve a lot without actually having a very big budget for like an RA even on that project. So you can imagine, so, so we, we had to sort of recalibrate what we could um, actually achieve with the limited resources and time, but also try and have some sort of definitive outcome that, that really helps us to self-reflect and, and see what is the value going forward other than sort of meeting what is the criteria that's set out in the national competency standards? How can we sort of um, um, deliver something more that is really um, hopefully looks at sort of reframing um, certain aspects of, of the way we're, you know, um, we're breaking down Indigenous things into um, all the subject? Um, yeah, and... I wondered, yeah, so. um, I'm going to go off piste a bit here, but I wondered if I could ask you 
because um, this is a current topic in my curriculum that I'm looking at, uh, where we're, we're mapping our curriculum at the moment, just the Indigenous curriculum. Um, I don't have the capacity to do all of it myself. Um, and uh, we're, part of the conversation is, and the challenge is, of the way that we view the world which is with a more holistic worldview compared with a compartmentalised worldview where you can separate um, Indigenous knowledge into channels. And, um, or you teach in this subject, you'll teach about this part of country and in this subject, you'll te teach about that part of country and that part of culture. And, and whereas um, in reality, that's not how we experience the world as Indigenous people. And, did you um, have any, I guess, challenges or thoughts about that or any, anything that came up in your, your thinking or working around these questions? I, I think um, I, I, have looked at, I have looked at sort of uh, what ha is occurring in, in other places and there's some very interesting, you know, um, thought, you know, discussions that have been occurring at universities around decolonisation. If you look at sort of, I mean, whether it's decolonising research practices or um, um, and in the way that, um, you know, particular approaches and um, professions uh, have approached Indigenous anything. So the medical profession, the way that they're teaching uh, nurses and doctors and so forth has been sort of reviewed at UQ as well. Um, I thought I thought what was quite interesting, I mean, there's, there's, there's quite sort of, there's a dis different schools of thought, you know, where if you look at Leslie Lokai, who um, has done some who was in a university, an American university, and then left and, and now is starting up her own school of architecture um, and decided that actually trying to suture things into an existing structure is not the way to do because you sort of butt heads um, over um, ideology or methodology or, or, or something. Um, and then there are other approaches where, where there are quite sort of um, self-reflective um, guilt, you know, that are, you know, over, oh, we've been doing these things really badly and so we must really, do we sort of dismantle the entire thing and rebuild it from the ground up? Um, I think, I think that, um, I think I'm not sort of, we're not advocating any particular approach at the moment because it's not, we're trying not to be ideologically driven in the sense that, um, that we're, um, we're saying, we're saying that this is the way you must do it and we're going to sort of try and fit this, the school into this new vision, um, because we're not really quite sure, um, about, about where it's heading um, entirely and what its impact is and what is what is what is the objective you know I guess education has its a I mean education is quite obviously connected to a market <laughs> a market of employability I mean that's what we're in the game you know we're not uh, but it sort of gets framed in a lot of um, 
ideological approaches and, and, and uh, theories and teaching and so forth. And then it's sort of in a decade, we're throwing that out. And it's a joke what we did a decade ago and wow, we're onto a new thing. And this is the, you know, so I think it's, I think, you know, there are, uh, you can be sort of, uh, you can miss fundamental things that, that um, if you get carried along by a wave. And I think what we're trying to do is um, we're, we're trying to sort of, we're muddling through that through a process of, I guess, mapping and seeing if there are some sort of inherent truths that come out of that and look at um, some of the theory and the approaches that are driving other institutions and seeing if there's values in us sort of re-evaluating what we're doing. Um, yeah, I think that is a starting point. But I think we have to we have to get a little buy-in from everybody um, because indi anything Indigenous, as you know, has been incredibly marginalised and son suddenly it's become very central. But th there are very real reasons why the changes to the national curriculum um, standards had occurred because governments are changing their procurement po policy. So it is coming from an economic basis. Um, the Commonwealth and state governments are changing their procurement policies so that you actually have embedded in all sort of procurement policies, this is procurement anything, not just buildings and architecture, um, to engage with Indigenous businesses, Indigenous, um, you know, uh, suppliers, makers, practitioners, a whole range of things. and and. And there is a very ill-prepared and under-resourced under industry that is being for you know, uh, to do this because the government, the current, uh, the government sort of focus of the government is that if we, they just looked at really another thing, American model again, um, looking at minority businesses and how they actually feed and change, grow, change in an economic sense for people who are really, um, you know, uh, outside of the, the sort of, uh, you know, major economic processes. But within Indigenous Australia, there is a, a very well um, uh, and considered documentation that Indigenous businesses, in terms of their employment practices, just have a tendency to have very high levels of Indigenous employment. And that actually fosters change and growth um, in, in an economic sense. And so governments are wanting to do that across all geographies in Australia. Um, how it's how that is occurring is, is quite interesting um, and, and it's in, impacting on architecture as well. So it's, um, and there's some quite sort of obvious things like health, you know, health facilities and um, in remote or regional Indigenous communities uh, or in urban communities that are Indigenous identified. Um, they've got quite specific policies, government funding bodies, but there's also um, uh, other policies that occurring in sort of um, building and construction as well. And so we're going to find that you can't really draw on the very minimal resources of Indigenous people to actually lead that. And so how's that going to occur 
um, all the minimal resources of Indigenous businesses. So there's a um, statistic, you know, there's about 17,000 Indigenous businesses and a large minority are identified in building and construction. What that actually means is um, perhaps there's a lot of Indigenous tradespeople, um, but a lot of them are sole operators, but there are other Indigenous businesses and that sort of certainly can't carry the whole procurement shift as well. So I think um, it's it's really interesting and, and that's where it's sort of essentially impacting on architecture. Um. Yeah, thanks, Carol. That's um, Actually, you've kind of segued me into the next question that I had, which is really great. Um, thank you. <laughs> um, which was about why do we why do we need to do this anyway? Um, why do, why should we include indigenous voices? Why should we bother with all of this turning upside down of the curriculum to put stuff in that's you know come from another place? And I might start with you there, Mel. Yeah. Um, and I, and that's also I can segue off what Carol just said because it put me in mind super interesting and it put me in mind of maybe some early hunches that it feels as if um, there are two, without simplifying it, there's sort of two ranges of responses to how you might put indigenised curriculum. And it's not just curriculum after all, it's pedagogy. Mm. And that's what I strongly feel. So one of my things for the last 20 years has been about the pedagogy of learning in situations, not you know, situated learning and live projects, and that's what I've done a lot of, and and sort of, and so I feel very strongly that there's some things you can't learn in the classroom that you need to be in a sort of cycle of practice to understand them, and I'm quite interested in all forms of, of you know, um, learning in 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 embedded in in situations whether that's in work situations in which you're learning or whether in learning situations, so. And it strikes me that that's why I'm quite interested in the creative practices idea because of a certain sort of deep relationality that is within the way we think about context is we're designing things, contexts of countries and peoples and geographies and geologies and natural resources and, and then that deep cultural context. Um, so it feels as if there's one, one way is a sort of pedagogic approach, which is that you need to be embedded and immersed to get a true, a, to really start to understand the practice that you might um, engage in very deeply or specialise in indeed. Then there's another sort of cultural competency side of this, which is perhaps saying, well, you know, that's an incredibly in-depth form of learning and in the typical architecture school, you have studios where you might do that, but not everyone would do that. So what's the other um, sort of, let's say, lighter touch, but no less important side, which means that you constantly experience all sorts of um, pro you know, understandings, protocols, and cultural competency of working in on country in, in situations with communities. And I've thought of both of those things in my career, not necessarily with respect just to indigenous um, context, but in terms of broader context of communities and social and economic disadvantage and marginalizing um, sort of aspects. And it feels that they're both really important and you can sort of see them as um, mutually beneficial ways of thinking about it. Because the time, the time and space of working in a very embedded way in a studio, in a, um, situation would be, uh, you know, quite quite all-encompassing and difficult to sustain. 
but there's there's another path which is also about understanding some basic under, you know some basic protocols so i guess that's one way which i don't think answers totally answers your question but maybe just what i was responding to when i was listening to you carol um and i think they're both really interesting because i think that it, it, it you know not everybody is going to um create a really sort of uh fulsome experience and understand um, deeply how working with community uh, might happen and but there might be um, nevertheless an understanding that needs to be much better ingrained much more um, occurring in you know yeah history and theory courses that don't aren't white western canon and that do understand first nations peoples and other re, you know um, contexts in which we work um and your, your question again, Danielle, was about why should we do it mm. anyway? Yeah. Um, well, in a way, I've answered it because I guess I'm, my, my view is that architecture, as I said before, has been sort of sadly professionalised into a sort of silo where it thinks about its processes in... This is a caricature because it's not as much like this as it was 20 years ago, but I am old enough to know. Um, and in a way... It uh, works itself into a sort of quite specific separation of its its own internal rules and processes from those in the outside world. And the worst place it's done that, it's often managed to uphold its sort of technical aspects of itself and its own internal logic, but really not managed to uphold its um, socially and community-facing and public interest roles half as well, with the result that there's a sort of language, you know, there's an archi speak that becomes quite hermetic and we think we're um, very broad-minded and working for the public good, but in fact we're sort of speaking a different language because we rarely take that language outside and sort of demonstrate it in the world. So I think regardless, that's an important skill for architectural education to get hold of and deal with. Um, and it's just a broader meta skill that, you know, we can't, as a discipline, we have probably have been professionalised around the wrong body of knowledge, and it's not technical knowledge. It's a sort of deeper, holistic uh, community knowledge about environment resources and the way that people interact with resources, and that's much closer to a sort of Indigenous understandings of country and ways in which um, place is understood and might be worked with. So it feels like it's a no-brainer for me, and regardless, um, in that sense. Easy win. Um, we're nearly... We're supposed to go into audience participation shortly. Um, yep. Okay. I was going to ask a question first. Is anyone really hot and want to move? Because <laughs> if you do, there's some shade over there. So please do. Sorry, I'm just I'm a hot-blooded person and always want to move out of the sun. I'm, a Liz I'm actually a goanna totem, so there you go. <laughs> if anyone else wants to move, please do feel free to get a move around. Thank you, Danielle. That's all right. <laughs> um, uh, you going to move over? Yep. Um, I did want to also talk about who should be leading this work because you've both talked about having um, First Nations... Uh, people coming into campuses, uh, into um, schools and um, uh, spaces, campus spaces. Um, but does it have to be First Nations people who lead it? 
Um, is, is there somebody else who's required to, to kick that off so that it, they can lead it? Like, what needs to happen in your experience and opinion, I guess, about the, the, that leading of that? that and like, who, who should be doing the grunt work? Who should be doing the tough, you know? Can I just jump in quickly? Because yes. one observation I've got is from outside of Australia of eight years and in the process of a sort of massive um, tidal wave, like the next tidal wave of decolonising that came with um, the events of the last three to four years. And one of the things that I really noticed in this period was uh, that you can have lots of frameworks and sort of rules and ways in which um, universities and institutions deal with equitable representation and that's happened with women a lot as we know and um, and one of the things that just still seemed really problematic especially in architecture for me was the lev- um, amount of um, people of colour teaching in universities let alone architecture um, particularly badly in architecture and so however much you put in frameworks and, and so on, this idea that you would be decolonising your curriculum whilst you've still only got 3% of your faculty to, in architecture. And this is at a time when in my faculty, 40 to, well, in my course, 40 to 50% of first years were people of colour. So the people teaching our course were largely white. They were gender, a better balance of gender, but largely white. And that was really confronting because many of the students um, were, were coming from various sorts of cultural background. So one of the things that we started to do was employ people of colour really consciously. And the reason I wanted to shout out was because that was quite unbelievably life-changing. The, we employed a young guy called Jade Nally, you won't mind me saying this, um, really young, but he gave him a senior lectureship at a leadership position in our master's course. He was in, he's incredibly smart, but nevertheless, very quickly it turned out that he was the only senior lecturer who was, he's got a um, North African heritage, and uh, but been born and brought up in East London, and he was the only senior lecturer and a person of colour in London at that time. And this had gone round as a sort of, you know, I was completely staggered and it was another sign that I, I didn't even know my own business. This was a really sort of, there was a paucity of sta- staff. Anyway, the, the next thing that he did as leading it was that he brought in for four studios, eight, eight more people from a broad range of cultural backgrounds, all people of colour for the next year. And it sort of snowballed. So it made me realise that um, we really need to start to hand over where we can without putting upon others a better representation across our cultural background, certainly mapping onto what we are in society, which in London is 15%, um, a 15%, you know, black Afro-Caribbean heritage, and put that into our institutions deliberately and start to see what what happens after that. And it's in a way it's been the way it's sort of you can't map it you can't frame it you can't put a series of steps in place it's, it just happens networks grow people become you know authenticated and given authority because of where they're sitting and it was a really natural and amazing flow and and he's sort of doing amazing things actually so and it wasn't just him there was two others as well so 
I sort of feel like that's, uh, for me, this is a really tricky issue because um, in the Australian situation, how do we not put upon Indigenous members of staff who, receive, who have to deal with all of this? And it was always a lively discussion in London as to why should I, just because I'm person of colour, why should I be the one leading decolonising, for God's sake? You're the ones who's got it wrong. <laughs> but So there was a delicate balance in giving over authority and leadership and all the benefits and lovely stuff that come with that and not just the grind and the sort of, you know... So I feel like there's something to learn in there that I, I don't think is exactly the same and the struggle here is a little bit different, to say the least, but I do think that it's interesting. Yeah, very interesting story and it'd be interesting to see how that filtered out, like map almost in retrospect, how that filtered out through... Yeah, sort um, of empowerment networks that then took hold because of being Jaden having given roles and jobs to others that then spread out into this sort of productive network and lots of, you know, um, you know, that group effectively, there was a setup of, you know, black women in architecture came out of that and lots of, lots of other sort of um, interesting moves. So, yeah. Thank you. Um, Carol, I wondered if you had any thoughts about who, you know, you've been in this role. How long have you been at UQ now? Um, if, you know, if, uh, <laughs> well, I, I was, you know, I started working at UQ officially in 2009 in a research role. So um, my um, role in in teaching is much, much later than that. So, so it's only really been um, quite, you know, officially since 2019. So prior to that, I was, even though I was in a research role, um, I was doing teaching as well. And so I think, I think um, the way, if, if I could just, um, just respond to what Mel was saying. The Australian approach is find the single Indigenous person uh, to carry the entire load. Um, and and then... Um, and see if they can co-opt their colleagues to, 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 to join in with them. Um, I think the model that we've learnt and that I've looked at overseas is actually called a cluster model um, and it's actually much better and it, and it really... Um, the cluster model is that you don't appoint just a single Indigenous person or a single uh, person of colour um, to, to carry a load for, you know, reinvention. Because I don't think it, it just is something that Indigenous people it's, uh, should solve and um, all people of colour. It's actually something that the institutions themselves can solve through strategic appointments and not sort of putting single uh, people there. Because, you know, um, we all get, as we know, there's a big history of huge burnout um, of Indigenous people because you get tasked with um, not only carrying your own institution or your own school, you, you get um, then you get sort of incorporated into bigger processes uh, within your institution and then and then nationally and internationally. So I think um, uh, I think that's a really challenging 
thing um, for a single uh, individual to carry that load. And I know that I'm not saying that I do that. Uh, I don't want to give you the impression that I'm doing this entirely for the School of Architecture. I've got some fantastic, really engaged colleagues um, at UQ who are doing a lot of the heavy lifting as well. Um, but um, I think... I think it would be really... I mean, we're a small, a small school and I think there's a strategy about, yes, how many people do you have, how many people... Um, um, and, and do you have others who are, who are working um, to, to, to sort of incorporate and infuse new, new ideas and new approaches and new networks uh, into the university? And it's amazing how that sort of then filters through to the type of research that's done and then the type of um, students that you attract, you know, and so forth. It does have a, it does have a huge flow-on effect. So I think, um, to answer your question, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm really against the whole idea of just a single Indigenous person leading it because I've um, been there and, and it's, it's, it's a very heavy load to carry um, and, and finding sort of colleagues um, not only within your own school um, but nationally. Um, I do think this is, this is something that the profession should be tasked with as well as, um, you know, we need to... We need to... I think... We've discussed this certainly at UQ and it was a point that was made by Sarah that, you know, indigenising anything, you know, the profession, the curriculum is not something that is just the task of Indigenous people, but it's really, uh, it's something that we need to have shared resources. And the way universities work on competitive models, you know, we've got our th single Indigenous person who's doing this and, and we're not going to share that information uh, because that puts us at a competitive disadvantage. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's, it's something that is not, um, yeah, I think, I think it's a model that just doesn't work for that, for what we need to accomplish. Yeah, I've actually been in both positions where I've had, I've been the single Indigenous person with no power to do anything but expected to do a lot in two days a week. Um, and that was um, burnout city <laughs> for me and a lot of, um, not just burnout, but I was, I'm still really resentful about it. I don't know how to get over being resentful about that, so I won't talk about the institution itself. Um, but now I'm in, at, at Sydney, I'm in a cluster of uh, three. Um, I was brought in and the, the Associate Dean of Indigenous is Indigenous, um, which isn't always the case, by the way. Um, and, uh, and then we've got a lecturer and me. And so there's at least three voices um, advocating and speaking and sharing and sharing the load. And it's um, substantially different, I have to be honest. Um, and um, I am also... Um, somehow in a different position where I can actually ask the head of school if I need money and she, within the day, is giving money for us to do work on indigenising the curriculum. So, <coughs> sorry. So it actually is, like, the, 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 the small bit changes in some ways, but they actually made a big difference to me being actually able to do the work and actually do... Um, to actually work on the on this project, not just feel like a useless 
person stuck in a faculty that I couldn't do anything in. Um, which sort of, um, I'm going to divert over to a, a, a different chain of thinking now about, like, what do you take out? What, what, now that you're going to put Indigenous curriculum in, what do you take out? Take out some of the existing history theory because some of it's well out of date. And that's easy, I really think. I, I mean, four modules in, in a five-year master's, or five-year bachelor of master's, four modules on white Western canon, broadly interesting, but still, that's a lot. So I'd take out at least one or two, that's what we're looking at, and um, that's one sort of easy place to do it. Uh, I think the other one that we're thinking about is, um, this is a bit radical, but how do you take, studios are usually double credits, that's the sort of usual model, like the 50%. It's just, just start to put more demands on studios or take some of their credit away in order to put some stuff in, which, which is a bit radical because I'm a big fan of the studio, but it is a very, it has become a very conservative instrument. You sort of give an enormous amount of way, but unless you're going to ensure that a certain level of studio is giving you some of these, the knowledges that we need to put back in, it might, um, it might be quite a sort of profligate way of teaching and um, and it can be quite sloppy and sort of, you know, maybe not as not as careful as it could be. So what we're looking at is maybe strands of studios that give up half of their credit for some Indigenous knowledge creation around a theme of Indigenising an Indigenous place and, and, cult and culture and community. And so that's, the, those are some early thoughts, but the history theory one's an easy one, I think. Yeah, easy win. Have you had to address that yet, Carol, about what, what goes? No, I'm not really um, being tasked to address with it at that level. I, don't, I think Mel is in a, a really nice position because <laughs> uh, uh, she, she has a lot of say with where the purse strings are <laughs> divided. Um, and, um, but I think that we have certainly had a discussion about... Um, you know, where history and theory starts, you know, uh, in terms of its approach. Um, can it be sort of, can these, can that content rather being separate in a, in a, in a course that sits distinctly um, and we hope that the students make a mental map and a, draw a line to um, studio, that, that there is actually a much more sort of direct feed that goes into studios because you have these, where everyone has this very sort of, quite specific model of the way the studios goes and, and Mel was talking about the credit points and stuff and it, it actually matches with the resources as well and so I think um, that has been, you know, a way in which we can sort of um, look at, you know, not only how those, those subjects are taught and what the content is but can it sort of actually can the linkages be drawn? Sometimes it's more obviously drawn between the tech subjects and studio and then that's where it stops and, and, and the history and theory are, these are your must-knows and must, um, and we hope that you sort of draw a connection um, and uh, to that to practice. But I think some of the really interesting practices that we're seeing sort of um, occurring across the nation are actually ones that have actually really incorporated a, a really 
deep knowledge of history and theory into their practice and they're reframing the way that they approach um, building and architecture. Um, and uh, so I think there's, there's, a, there's, there's an opportunity for that. I don't know. Um, I think we're trying to sort of um, look at where we can have some quite sort of uh, obvious obvious changes and, in, and impact and, and the way that it has, I don't know if this is uh, similar at, at Monash or, or other universities, is that the, the Indigenous stuff was so niche <laughs> and sat outside of that and um, saw no relationship to anything else. <laughs> um, but I think um, in talking to colleagues who are teaching history and theory, there is a sort of a new energy and a new, uh, and then an obvious awareness that, you know, it's, it's been sort of um, so marginalised, um, its relevance and its impact into um, the way that the, that subject was taught has, um, has uh, rendered it meaningless and that needs to be sort of uh, re-looked at. So that's, I think that's the state that we're at now where I'm, uh, yeah, I, I like sort of some of Mel's ideas and so I hope this... I, I also think, um, you know, because I, I, you know, we know that some studios, for instance at Monash, and this is right across all, all institutions, I think, have had some really interesting examples of embedded design studio practices. We've got Sarah's done one. We've got um, uh, Hannah Robertson, who's now at Melbourne Uni, has done a did a fantastic um, example a couple of years ago. Nikila Madarashi has done one in um, with the Ganai Kanai people in um, East Gippsland. And the way I see it is that those exist already, and what we need is a connective tissue that builds on those sorts of practices, but also connects them and grounds them, so they're not just sort of you know, out on a limb. And that's certainly quite well aligned with what we're interested in at my school. And I think probably I'm not, we're not alone. So what you might do is some editorial and sort of careful stitching in which you might make, for example, a strand which allows you to pick up both a mixture of some core subjects, you know, some elective subjects and some design studios so that there are sort of really fantastic thick strands and then there are the sort of, you know, important um, protocol building, cultural competency, but maybe thinner strands and that we do both because it is a packed curriculum. But, um, but yeah, I, I just see that the, the capacity to do it really, really well is already, is sort of there already in these small little pockets and we should build on that and make that, um, you know, continue to do that good practice, but just sort of make it less just ad hoc. The ad hocism is the problem at the moment. Um, I wondered if I might turn the next couple of questions outwards to all of you to, to be included. Um, the first one that I have is around um, what... Uh, what do we want to see in the curriculum um, that is First Nations content? And what's, in, like, what's important that we get in there? Is there anything that must be in there or anything that we really have to have or anything that we can... that would be fun? <laughs> everyone, everyone and 
anyone who wants to go first or if these two want to start us off? I, I would start you off partly because um, I did a dissertation when I was at university in my third year, having lived in Australia for five years and otherwise being back in England on um, song lines and indigenous placemaking and particularly, um, I don't know if anyone's read Mercy Eliad, The Myth of the Eternal Return. I think maybe he's been uh, discredited recently, but he's this, he's this quite interesting person who talks about the way in which um, we constantly relive certain ceremonial ritual behaviours as part of early sort of um, understandings of place and meaning. And um, so fascinating, sort of ethnography, anthropology, and I know that's like a classic sort of boring start, but it actually is totally missing. And given that a lot of ethnography and anthropology is based on practices working with the nat natural resources and the land, it feels like a you know, and people and the interaction between them and the sort of circularities. It feels like it's, as I said, a no-brainer for architecture anyway and to understand more about um, those energies would be, would be a place I would start like that. And in fact, that, that's what... I would, it, would be, it would be great to imagine that. Not that it's just um, an architecture course maybe, but an architecture module. It's really basic, but... Thank you. Um, and I agree that there's the spirit of place is often what's missing from so much of our architecture and it's, you know, so much related from uh, somewhere else, from a place a long way away that d didn't ori originate here. The, um, the understandings of that architecture didn't start from here. The ways of the materiality didn't start from here. Like there's some basics that are missing in terms of, the, of the, even those simple understanding the spirit of place, let alone the literal spirit of, of each place. Um, hi, I'm Maddie. I'm a Dara Corman and I'm at the University of Melbourne and we're working on decolonising our planning curriculum. And something that we've been discussing recently is indigenising a curriculum uh, is not just including Indigenous content in the learning but it's also the way in which we do assessments it's the way in which we teach and learn and the way in which that learning is continued across the journey of of a student's life at the university um yes i guess if i was wanted to see something in an indigenous curriculum it would be that uh care that is brought into the learning environment and then how that is then fostered because as an Indigenous person, our learning never stops and our relationships never stop and we continue that cyclical learning for the rest of our lives. And so how does that begin in some ways for students at university and then how is that then fostered beyond university? Yeah, so uh, the pedagogical approach as much as anything, like how do we learn and how do we learn on an ongoing way in, throughout our lives? Thank you. I wondered if anyone else would like to share about what they'd like to see in curriculum um, from an Indigenous perspective. Bradley's going to um, share. And Ivan. Okay. Hi. I'm going to say something. 
Um, uh, I actually have um, a question that came from a discussion recently with um, a friend of mine who works in Indigenous engagement and she expressed concerns over um, what she's experienced in the architectural industry, which is this sort of, you know... <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, this approach to architecture that the architect is like the linchpin of a project and they know they're the knowledge holder um, and they can do everything. And so if you're teaching architects at a university level um, what engagement with communities is, what engagement with country is, how do you sort of, you know, prevent them from them taking that into their university life, oh, sorry, post-university life, and sort of going, well, I've done this before, I'm an architect, this is my project, this is how I'm doing it, and then, you know, you get... Um, you're having a chat with community or uh, you've got a specific specialist engaged on a project, they're giving you advice or they're re recommending things. The architect's hearing one thing and doing another. Like, how do you... Like, it's almost... You almost need to teach philosophy in architecture <laughs> school as opposed to... Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's such a good point. And it, I've thought a few times, what is that course? It's sort of like ethics, duty of care, conduct. It is a course that's badly needed in architecture. Um, it's often taught by, like in those studios that I talked about, it's implicitly mm. discussed and embedded, but it's not pulled out as a, again, as something really core that everybody has to do. But I totally agree with you. It's a, um, yeah, sort of collaboration ethics. And I think probably various sorts of practising public health and other sorts of courses do that, have that sort of content where you deal with people as part of your profession. What, and I really don't know why architects have had it removed from there. Was it, there, but was it ever <laughs> there? No, it was ever there. But <laughs> no, I, don't, I think it just... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes philosophy, though, is, again, it's, it's been a bit of the white Western, white Western canon. canon, you know, it's, it's the sort of philosophers, but I don't know, I think there's a sort of slightly more practice-based practice -based philosophy, which is the philosophy of ethics down at the sort of coalface. And again, we're a service profession. Why on earth that's not in it? And, and look, I've had, I've had <laughs> this is slightly um, nothing to do with indigenising curriculum, but I wish that these people had had an indigenised curriculum so I didn't have to do this, where exactly what you were talking about has happened and I've had to address it. And I've come across uh, male architects, to be really honest, like, not like you, um, who who had learned a particular way and, like you were saying, were the sole um, main voice and the sole main um, uh, doer of everything in the architecture, whether they actually were or not. They probably definitely aren't because they have all of these others who do all this work, but they're the ones who are recognised for it because they have that, that name. And they had in, some interactions with some community and 
subsequently went off and basically desecrated a sacred place um, because they felt like they had the right after absorbing that information. And they filmed themselves <laughs> doing that. So, of course, I was able to then contact the, the people who were advertising this film because it was being advertised to come and watch this film of these architects um, doing what they were doing. So I then had to felt I had to step in um, because I, uh, they were acting so poorly for that place and towards that, that culture, um, which they clearly didn't understand because they understood it through their Western white philosophical viewpoint. Um, and it didn't include an Indigenous understanding of place at all. It, it was their own readings of that. And um, how you, I, I think it, you're right. There has to be a different um, philosophical understanding to undo that. That involves um, other other world views, other perspectives, other um, ways of seeing the world. And it, without that, it's just you know that's that was that happened last year. So it's not a like years and years ago this happened. This is last year. Anyway, you've got to look after a baby. <laughs> I also think um, there's something highly synergistic about our need to deal with climate crisis in architectural education, our need to indigenise that go innately together. And that feels like a, a, a sort of opportunity that we need to take, take up very strongly at the moment because they quite intertwined, not everywhere, but issues of... Um, I don't know, issues of, of adaptation or care or um, understanding of resources, understanding of, of, of just, just seems like quite a natural synergy that could be better, hand, could be, could be better understood and educated for. You'd have thought so, wouldn't you? Um, the, anyone else? Oh, here we go. Hello, everyone. Hi, my name's Libby. Um, I'm at RMIT up the road, or down the road from where Maddie is. Um, so we're doing similar kind of work trying to grapple with all the things you're grappling with. Uh, it's really interesting, useful, fabulous conversation. Uh, the th thing I'd like to add to the list, if we're, I'm doing a little list of stuff that we've all said about what we want in the curriculum, uh, is and in the, from the planning perspective, um, this seems to be particularly kind of important, is a, is a reckoning with a proper truthful account um, of the ways in which our disciplines and professions have been so integrally involved in colonisation. Because planning is right at the heart. Um, may maybe not so much architecture, I don't know, but certainly planning is right, right there in the middle. Um, and, and there is just a very loud silence um, on that. So I would add reckoning with what our, mm. speaking as an uninvited guest here, um, our role is mm. in that as a profession. Absolutely agree with you there. And architecture is right there with you in planning. It, uh, I researched this in my PhD and wrote, wrote a part of my a chapter about it. Actually, wrote a whole chapter about it. And it was, I was so depressed at the end of the chapter. I actually had to leave my writing for a while because I was, I, was, I was not depressed, but I was so down on what, what I'd been, what I'd learned and what I'd understood. And the silence is really loud. And deafening silence, and we, and you know, um, anyone who's Aboriginal and or here probably has heard the elders say, yeah, um, "We need them to tell the real truth. We need them to tell the real stories of of place." And I'm, and um, 
it's not just the nice stories that need to be told, it's those stories of place, of how putting up fences and putting down roads and putting in um, all of the infrastructure that we, we live with now and live through has interrupted song lines and interrupted um, movement paths and interrupted ways of living and stopped people being able to access and care for country and continues to do that. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> yeah, but we always facilitated the same thing at the same time, just in a different way. I think for me, I might come and ask you to answer that as well, um, Carol, but for me, um, currently it's because we're still trying to do it within that same system that hasn't changed for 230 years and the same way of doing th that system. And unless we change that system, then of course we're going to come up against time pressures and not having enough time to do it right and not including the right people and not including all of the right voices. And it takes all of us to push back against that type of system those who are in it have to actually say, actually, this isn't working for us. And you say, go back to the client and say, that's rubbish. I was going to swear then. That's, that's rubbish. <laughs> um, that's not enough time to do this properly. And, and we're actually, like, I'm speaking more as a practitioner than um, somebody working on curriculum now, but we're actually starting to say, we can't work on this project because you haven't given it us enough time. You have to have Indigenous voices here. If you want us to work on this project, we need to be leading it even. We're saying those kind of things. And if you guys have to be supporting us to say those things, though, which was sort of the next point that I was going to make. Go on, Carol. Do you have anything to say? Um, I mean, just to answer your question, yeah, there aren't enough resources and I think it's quite obvious. Um, the low rate of Indigenous graduates... Um, but, you know, and practitioners who even sort of crossing over the built environment cannot sort of um, facilitate the, 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 the big changes that are occurring. And I, and I think that, um, that that means that um, it's, it's, you know, when you're a rare commodity, um, that, you know... In, you know, having an, a, a demand in which you can't meet is not to get that rare commodity to try and meet the demand. Um, I think it's crazy to do that. And I think that I've always, um, you know, indigenising anything is not really um, about sort of black brushing and it's not something that should be slowly tasked by Indigenous people. Um, and then we have to step back from that and ask ourselves, what are we doing it for? You know, what is it? Um, is it? Are there? Is there a much more strategic way and approach that we can have to this so that we can actually, um, you know, have really meaningful change in certain aspects? But to try and sort of have this in incredible wave of change, which is like a 
across the entire nation seems um, seems fraught fraught with um, you know being able to then sort of institutions and 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 uh, to to then say well we don't have the resources so we can step back from that and we'll we'll sort of delay that until the resources uh, appear so I think it's I, I think we need to sort of have a strategic approach about what's occurring within our own institutions have a reality check um, also be strategic about what's really occurring um, you know across the nation and where those resources are, are, are you know. Um, required and distributed and, and so forth. So I think, um, you know, how do you do that? I think they, I think because this thing is occurring in an ad hoc manner and it's really, it's really um, an, un, you know, it's an unwieldy beast. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of revisioning of, of um, I was talking earlier about, there's some major revisioning of what Australia's identity is in in terms of its cities, and um, but you know, try, instead of having sort of really small wins in in little buildings or something, there's a huge contribution where um, the vision forward is to incorporate its you know an in, an indigenous understanding. They're they're really quite major gestures that could occur. Um, you know, um, in a different way than how it's been occurring currently. You know, it's um, so if we look at sort of what's happening in Perth, Adelaide, you know, Brisbane, um, Sydney, Melbourne, uh, there are some really big plans that have been sort of put on hold because of COVID. Uh, it's helped us recalibrate where money and resources are being spent, but. Um, but there's still big plans nonetheless that incorporate, in, in, you know, um, uh, an understanding of recognising uh, the Indigenous heritage of, of urban spaces, you know, which has always been sort of, um, you know, aside and, a, you know, our cities have very sort of fraught histories of segregation and exclusion and, and, and so forth. So I think, you know, there, there are strategic moves that could occur um, and, and that everything, it, it's not just, a, a, you know, black brushing the entire nation because it's, it's a crazy strategy. It's not, I don't think that's what Indigenous people are talking about either. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I think there needs to be a, a clear, higher level sort of more strategic approach to what we're, what we're doing and to really understand what are, we, what are the wins that we're trying to get here. Um, you know, um, we've got 23 schools of architecture, I think, if that includes our New Zealand colleagues as well, um, and PNG. So we've got, could be more. Um, so, you know, that's, you know, it's huge changes to implement across all 23 schools with the resources that we currently have. So we're really talking about, um, yeah, having a bigger strategy about, you know, what is the end, end game for the profession and, and what, you know, what are we trying to achieve here? Uh, because if we start, you know, if I look at it from an institutional level, Within my own institution, it seems like, you know, uh, there are some very immediate doable things that you can do, but there are sort of schools that are 
um, are really struggling to to even sort of know where to start. So um, I think I think they yeah I think we need to have a strategy where we're um, you know it's a higher level strategy that we collectively all sort of um, aim for. The national standards have sort of done that a little bit with saying you have to address these eight performance criteria, I guess, um, and that's coming in a couple of years, so those ones that are struggling will have to start to address it, which sort of leads me to the next question, and I'll come to you in a second, um, that maybe we can all start to think about is what can non-Indigenous people do to support this if it's if it's a um, such a minority who can actually... Um, who can actually do the work in in a in terms of what's being asked currently? Um, what can non-Indigenous people do to support this work? Um, what do you reckon, Mel? Um, well, just listen a lot and be a bit wary of all of these challenges. Of um, that's one thing. Um, I think. Um, carry on and support but always being mindful and careful um, that the way that you might be doing something or carrying something forward has got others you know buy-in or that you're constantly in a sort of network relationship where it's being reviewed and understood because uh, I, I do think it's unrealistic to put this sort of load upon uh, literally handfuls of people and that there is a lot of will and care existing within um, the broader sort of educational profession to bring to begin to climb this sort of quite big mountain so there there is more resource if we can understand that but at the same time you know at the same time the yeah the 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 balances and the relationships need to be sort of constructed so that so that we can all be supportive and haven't haven't nutted that one out yet except to just say that it's Avoid putting it upon one person. I think that the team approach is a really good one. Maybe there's interinstitutional team approaches that are more less um, competitive and more um, nurturing, let's say, and also produce dialogue that's really interesting. And maybe it isn't an in individual institutional response, but you know, a, a sort of linked up response. I mean, I'm always quite interested in pushing outside of institutional boundaries, you know, and the sort of their own competition systems and saying, well, you know, what if there was short courses that were offered by something, you know, or what if there was another way of getting sort of intense short bursts of um, experiences uh, that that sort of sat over the top of individual institutions and worked more in a more, you know, um, I don't know, in a more sort of, you know, distributed way. So it's also interesting to think about other ways in which it could be done. It doesn't always have to happen in this very sort of stolid curriculum review sort of methodology. And like I say, I'm, it's partly about connecting the ad hoc into a strategy and maybe running that through understanding that it's gradual or that it's we're working on a that we see it as iterative. So you might do something and test it for a year and then work towards something in five years and ten years because we, we have to work out we're coming from a fairly low base. Mm. I think that's really clear and it's change isn't going to happen. In fact, it might be dangerous because we might end up with burnout and also, um, you know, people not sort of coming along in the right way. So I think the accepting that it's 
one of these. It's a, it's not a, it's not, we're not going to solve it overnight, if indeed ever. I mean, it goes back to that point about these are sort of long histories of violence and colonialism that aren't going to be solved, um, you know, that have affected the world. And so I, I feel that's, that's a really important thing. We just, we, I think you're saying some, something similar, Carol, just that it's a sort of gradual or a cautious level of what you can do rather than everything at once. And I, yep, and I think there's also um, um, certain things that non-Indigenous people should do that take over the burden that we shouldn't have to do, like some of the teaching of the subjects. We should not be teaching some of those subjects because it's very tiring and it's not fair. Because I removed myself from the conversation, I have to add myself back in. <laughs> Love that. Um, I've done this twice now, so clearly can't let go. <laughs> Um, I just, like, in terms of what non-Indigenous people can do, I don't know, I think the model that we've been trying to work with um, at Monash has been really interesting because it becomes every single teacher in the school's responsibility to do their own part. And, um, you know, we're, we're still at year one um, and it's taken us a few months to be at year one. But we're not just looking... Like, as we go through, we're, lo we're talking about... or well, having a big yarn about what all of the assessments are that happen across every subject across the year level. And not only going, OK, well, maybe we could talk about this from an Indigenous context or maybe we could talk about this in that we're going, hold on, that's actually not appropriate because, you know, the first studio that the... the um, I don't know if I'm talking out of turn here, but the first <laughs> studio that the students go through, they're um, taken in a rocket ship and crash land somewhere and they've got no context. And so we've been going, well, that's basically terra nullius. Um, <laughs> um, right? And we're reinforcing that in the first studio that they take. And so our whole... Yeah. <laughs> so the whole process we've been working through with first year is not actually embedding Indigenous content. It's setting the students up to not have those as their base. So it's making sure that they understand context, they understand layers, they understand materiality, they understand, you know, a much deeper reality than crash landing somewhere and not knowing where that is until after they finish the semester. So the, the reason I'm saying that as an example is that we've been going through and doing, I don't know, an audit, whatever we're calling it. But as we go along, we're picking off that low-hanging fruit of going, well, this is just, you know, it's setting people up to fail if we're then going to introduce Indigenous content at some point because they're not starting from the right base. So I think, like, it has to be holistic and it has to be the responsibility of every single person who is responsible for teaching people because I'm not, I'm not then going away and redesigning that assessment we sit down, we have a big yarn, and then they go away and they redesign the assessment and we come back. And if it doesn't work that way, then they're not going to be able to take it on and continue it in their own right. So I think it's, it's everyone's responsibility, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous. That's my two cents. Doesn't it have to start at kindergarten? Yeah. Yes, please. <laughs> it would be good if the schools were helping. A lot of kindies do. I think I was just going to, um, sorry, <laughs> um, I think I was just going to follow on from that um, because I, I'm a non-Indigenous uh, landscape architect living and working on Wurundjeri, Wurrung country, and um, I've been doing sessional teaching for the last sort of 
three, four, no, five or six years. Um, and it's interesting when you're sessional teaching, you have zero context about the curriculum. So you don't even know what the curriculum is. You're just doing your own thing. <laughs> and it's quite bizarre. But um, I guess then you do, yeah, you do sort of have to take it upon yourself um, to do the work. And then also because the students are incredibly you know, they're so interested in this stuff that sometimes they come out with the like, quite scary things and to know how to respond to it is really difficult sometimes because, you, yeah, they're often coming from other countries where they've never um, heard about any kind of um, Aboriginal people or anything. And so, to, yeah, it, I think it's quite difficult to know how to respond sometimes. But... Um, yeah, I mean, maybe it's more of a question than anything, but it's just how to how to how to deal with that. that. You raise a really important point, which is that architectural education is stuffed full of sessional tutors delivering courses, uh, and uh, may need to start thinking about number one how it hooks up its casualised labour force into a more permanent sort of structure in order that you have a context which you might be able to draw on. I mentioned it before in our idea about cluster studios that have a, that have a context sort of, or a piece of a module that's, that's sort of going through them that everybody would be connecting to. Um, it's just one idea, but I think you make a really good point in general, which is if it doesn't work because nobody, the only people who understand what the curriculum is is the permanent staff, it's going to fail because they are 10 not No, that's that's unfair. They're probably 25% of the teaching team. Yeah. I mean, of course, especially in the studio, which is this sort of, like I said, it's we talk about design studio as incredibly freeing and a fantastic problem-based learning, which it is, but it's also really conservative because it won't re it won't change itself and it's it just allows individual tutors to do what they want which is great at yeah. one end of the scale. It's a fantastic, mostly, but of course it fails at other ends of the spectrum. So how do you get the benefits of yeah. both sides of this vehicle, this studio vehicle? So I guess it's part of indigenising practice yeah. or the, um, the disciplines. Um, and I know we've been, been talking about ways of doing that already, but yeah, maybe obviously that's all part of it. In, re in relation to international students, I mean, Melbourne has about 40% of our architecture program as international students. Landscape architecture is probably more like 60 or 70%. And, and it's in landscape architecture, in fact, that really strong moves have been made to indigenise. And we certainly have staff members questioning the relevance of indigenising to the international students. So I think everywhere faces the problem of globalising its curriculum and I, I just wonder whether um, the Indigenous agenda doesn't actually offer some opportunities to connect with international students in ways which we haven't really thought of. Yeah, I reckon. Um, I mean, I, I don't know anywhere on earth that doesn't have Indigenous people. Um, so... Even if uh, they're not, in, they don't have understandings of indigenous people here. They may not even know that they have them back home, and so there's a massive learning that they can do from that. 
But I think there's also another learning about working with marginalised or people from very small groups or people who are, have been voiceless or, pe you know, like, I think we all need to learn that in a different way than we have been because we haven't, we aren't doing it properly yet. And I think that's sort of the point of these discussions, that we haven't done it properly yet. And so there's the opportunity where, even if you don't understand that you're, um, that you, who, where you are has Indigenous people, that you can learn other things about other people. But I think the other thing, which I really hope people learn from the curriculum that I'm involved in, is about the relationship between me and the planet. And that relationship is, has been severed in Western society as far as I can see. And there's a, a small gift that Indigenous people have that we still, that, that disconnection is more recent than everybody else, if, it, if at all. For most of us, we would still feel connected. So I feel like um, that connection and that leads to all sorts of other issues um, that, um, or disconnection rather, that leads to all sorts of other issues like climate change, um, like overpopulation, like which we can't talk about because we're too scared to as a <laughs> society, but it's a real thing. Um, like, as, and, and not only that, but this is a thing that affects us in the built environment. Like, where are we going to put people when we're designing? All of the people who we're, who we're reproducing. Like, you know, these are things that we can start to bring into the conversation. So it's not only about one tiny, narrow strain of um, understanding indigeneity and Indigenous people that can be learnt from indigenising curriculum. From my perspective, I started writing a list and it was massive of all the ways that I could contribute. And this is through my limited understanding. If I could talk to Sarah and Carol, I reckon it would, we'd triple that understanding of what we could put into different curriculum that comes from an Indigenous perspective. In fact, Carol was talking about it earlier, at an earlier session, how it um, came into biomedicine, was it? Oh, oh. Oh, yeah, sorry, um, bioengineering. Yeah. That, that's just me, but maybe I'll pass over to you, Carol, to speak to this. Yeah, I think Paul ra raises a really relevant point because, um, I mean, if we look at the economy or uh, education as a part of the economy, uh, which is incredibly reliant on... Um, overseas students to, to fund our universities in ways that our domestic students can't. So, um, so what is the relevance of what we're teaching for them um, when they go back to their countries of origin? Um, I think, I think um, the percentages of, um, our overse of overseas students within universities varies across the country. You know, I, I think you... I think our, our school is um, barely hitting 20% in terms of um, our overseas students. It, it could be something to do with Brisbane being a sort of the, the third the third sort of city um, in the nation. So and um, and that there are higher numbers at um, definitely at, in, in in the Melbourne schools um, and at uh, Sydney University. So. What is the relevance of what we're teaching? Um, I think, I think uh, it goes back to the point of you know we really need to have, we need to have a sort of a higher level strategy that then gets nuanced at each in, you know each institution because um, 
we've all seen the issue where you have a higher level of strategy and that and you know we're trying to fit sort of institutions that don't really fit that model and they've got a different sort of um, they've got a different student base so I think that um, that needs to be uh, certainly considered but I think also um, to the point that Danielle made which was about um, you know every everyone comes from nations where there are disenfranchised people but I, I really hate sort of positioning indigenous people as as um, as just their history being that we have uh, statistically the rise of an indigenous middle class uh, which has only emerged in probably the last decade in the nation so that's sort of uh, there's still a very small minority, I, I, I might add, of um, Indigenous people overall, uh, but they're mainly occurring in cities, um, which is not surprising. And, um, and so I think we need to sort of think about the framing of Indigenous people as, um, as constantly as the dispossessed. Um, a lot of Indigenous people don't see themselves as that they um they you know so I, I i or disenfranchised um so i think that there are some you know i think there's high level strategy that has to occur we have to nuance it for our own institution we have to sort of consider the relevance of what we're teaching can we carry over learnings um and can uh we incorporate a broader set of perspectives that can be learned um, from from the process of colonization some of the some of our student body are from I mean every nation <laughs> predominantly and every major sort of national international power is a colonizer uh, and then some of our smaller ones are too so I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of learnings um, that we can carry through into sort of changing those practices because we're finding that they're, they're constantly being uh, repeated and it crosses over, crosses over uh, into, into architecture and the way that sort of buildings are, are built, cities are designed and so forth. I agree with Carol. <laughs> but also I was going to say, yeah, you raise a really important point, which is that you know, architectural education is distinctive in different institutions related to context and position. And, you know, I'd say that that um, although a relative newcomer to Monash, I, I came to Monash because it's got some of my values in its sort of mission, which is, you know, putting architecture to work in a broader real-life settings um, and all of those things. So it makes a lot of sense for us to take it quite seriously and to do a sort of root and branch sort of look through whether and where we have got these po pockets of strength where they're being weakened by a lack of connectivity or something but I do think it, it it might not be for everybody I think it's a really interesting point you make about the numbers of international students and I also think it's interesting in terms of the amount of indigenous students in different universities in programs of architecture which I know to be us to have relatively smaller amounts than um, uh, Queensland and 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 you know up north so I guess that's also raises a point I think the other thing that we're thinking about though is um, I don't know maybe this is my outsider status but the, re the region I do think it's in it's I mean a lot of 
I don't know the data because I'm too new back into Australia, but a lot of people come and study here because they want to live here. And therefore, it's a pathway, you know, sort of pathway into um, becoming a resident and a citizen. So to some extent, it's not just a sort of, it, it, it is a pathway into understanding a sort of identity of a place and its and its um, position. But I also think what used to I used to really enjoy about RMIT back in the day, um, maybe still the case or not, was the sort of understanding of the Asia Pacific region as our sort of also as our focus and and how we might you know work in informal cities and as well as understanding regional contexts in Australia. And it just felt like a a nice extra regional understanding of peoples and cultures. I don't think we do quite enough of that in Australia either because that and that would maybe answer some question about its relevance because it's it's a regional ref relevance. Who are we on it here in this part of the world and what are our commonalities and you know geopolitical sort of grim times it seems even more in the in the sort of questions so I don't know that's probably going a bit too far but anyway. <laughs> We've got um, just 15 minutes left and Sarah wants us to write a manifesto. <laughs> Have you done it already on there? So what I, what I wondered if we could just um, briefly pass the mic around about what you would like to see in um, Indigenous curriculum and, um, yeah, just, is that enough? Yeah. Oh, what you wish? Oh, what you wish you would have known when you were learning, <laughs> starting with this lovely lady here in the black, <laughs> who doesn't want to speak about indigenous I'm curriculum. Still studying, so maybe I well, can't maybe make you a can tell yet. us what you'd like to learn about now, next semester. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> what do you think's not there? Yeah, what's not there? Or alternatively, why did you come to this talk? I think just to like hear what everyone else has to say and I guess as well how how I can help incorporate Indigenous perspectives into like every single thing that I do at university. Like it's not just siloed into specific things, but it's part of everything. Thank you. That was a thing. <laughs> That was a good point. Um, I was going to speak earlier. Um, I actually come from an anthropology background um, and I think what anthropology does really well is recognise its past traumas that it's made and it's linked to colonisation. And um, starting at university, that was in anthropology, that was the first thing that we learnt about was the impact and it sort of taught an ethics of the implications of what you do. And so I, I would really like to see that in, in planning and be specifically related to planning is, um, yeah, learning more about that history and, and how to avoid past wrongs. Thank you. That's my husband who doesn't know. work in architecture. <laughs> so he may, he may not want to want to, want to answer. Um, look, I think it's really just talking about education and our responsibility as staff members and teachers and having that genuine engagement and um, it's not just a desire but it's almost like it's just what needs to be done in terms of 
being able to look at multiple perspectives and not through the white gaze, I feel like that happens so regularly where, yes, everyone wants to talk about multiple perspectives and they'll talk about diversity and they'll sort of feel like, oh, I've done that and I'm feeling really good about myself. But you really sort of have to understand... Looking at your own identity, I think there needs to be a lot of work at looking at your own identity and how you move through the world in order to really engage with true appreciation of multiple perspectives and how that trickles down to assessment. I think this uh, person here was saying about assessment as well and how we're really having to change the entire sort of framework around the way we teach Thank hope you. that made sense. It made sense. Hi. Uh, thanks. I'm really inspired by my students who are constantly <laughs> offering really interesting kernels of truth. Um, something that I've been thinking a lot about is how to, how to be together in this process of change and thinking about that in relationship to relationships with students, um, relationship with dear colleagues down the road um, who are doing really good work. And in relationship to you know colleagues in the institution who are all on different journeys in this space and it can feel really lonely and isolating and scary. So building that kind of community of practice for lack of a better phrase is something I'm really interested in exploring. And it's about connection, I guess, connection and in, in sort of the humanity of, of all of this. Um. So what would I want to see? So I was educated quite a while ago. Um, I did not get uh, any indigenous, um, anything in my architectural education, in my master's program, um, encountered a little in my PhD program, um, but, uh, but not so much. Um, and uh, those of you who were here for the last session, you know I teach uh, architectural history. Um, and one of the things that uh, I think definitely needs to be instilled in architectural history, especially, uh, is sort of a broader, uh, a broader scope. Um, I teach a global class, um, which I don't even get to Western architecture for uh, our classes are 15 weeks in the U.S., so like week 10, mm -hmm. something like that. Um, but uh, you know, just sort of uh, embedding. Um, a broader range of, of, of sites and of, uh, of knowledges um, and impressing on students sort of what, what the range of things are uh, out there, uh, I think is very important. Um, I also, uh, Mel, your comment about a class maybe on ethics or co-design, I don't know if it's exactly co-design, but um, co-being maybe, um, I think would be extremely valuable, uh, especially for her first-year students coming in, though I wonder how that could be broadened so that those concerns are embedded in the curriculum um, itself. So it's not, it isn't just, you know, that course, um, but that through studio, through the history theory programs, um, those values come through uh, in the ways that those courses are run, in the ways that students are treated, in the assignments that they're given, and how the teachers and professors interact with the students, uh, I think would be very, uh, very valuable. Yeah. Can I ask Bradley too? Oh, Bradley. 
Thanks. I'm kind of glad that you went before me because I'll not be as mean about history of architecture and architectural history. Um, in particular, like the first year of architecture. You read a big fat book called The World History of Architecture and I, like, I could not give two shits about like Palladian facades or what Batista did or like why do I need to know the difference between a Doric and an Ionic and a Corinthian column? Like, who cares? <laughs> um, um, <laughs> I just think that... Write that one down, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> so, no Doric, Ionic, <laughs> Colonic. Um, I don't don't really know where I was going with that, other than like the teachings of architecture and architectural history from a like, university perspective is very focused on, as you were saying, Western architecture, and I think that you know something really needs to be done to change that. In particular, it's quite a long course, and it you know, for me at least, it took up a lot of time and a lot of study and a lot of research and I can still remember those things but there's no relevance to me in my career or my everyday life or like anything that I do in practice so I don't really see the virtue in studying it and then I think the other thing is like how universities for the most part are like pretty old buildings so how do you adjust the method of teaching and not just what you're teaching to suit the environment Thanks, Bradley. Um, well, I teach about the Ionic and the Doric. <laughs> and I just, I just have to say that I think um, um, good teaching of those things would actually <laughs> bring in the social and diversity and cultural issues. Um, I, I, I do have to say I think they can be um, taught quite quickly. So, um, no, 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 that's all right. I mean, I, 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 do think that, I do think that architectural history teaching needs a lot of work and, uh, and there is a lot of work going on in the architectural history community. Um, uh, you know, if you look at the Society of Architectural Historians um, website, you'll see a large number of initiatives in the United States to deal with black history minority histories, um, even Pacific Islander histories, which <laughs> you'd think in the United States were much less significant than they are here. Mm. So, um, um, but I think what I would really like to see in architectural education, built environment education generally, is a great deal more attention to the diversity of our society, of the world. Um, and I, I, I think that, uh, the indigenous initiatives which are occurring in Australia are an absolute bridgehead for that issue. I don't think that the <laughs> indigenous teachers should carry all responsibility for that, but I nevertheless feel that um, um, the, 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 the indigenous issue seems to be making some ground around the broader issue of diversity, which we haven't been able to make in architectural education um, for 20 years. Thanks. Thank you. Um, I'm also, I've come back from London relatively recently and I'm at Sydney University on a very part-time basis. And we've done, some colleagues have instigated a yarning circle, which has been going on for about, for about a year now. 
um, which is Michael Mossman and Ellie Davidson, who's speaking tomorrow. You know, we're really amazingly lucky to have those people and Danielle now joining it. And there's a non-Indigenous person, Claire Cooper, who's driving that. And actually this collection of people and that regularity that happens first Wednesday of every month um, has been really great. And going on a journey together um, of a little, having that space to go, I don't know about this, and everyone is on their different journeys and you hear about that and you learn stuff and I end up having like 100 tabs open as everyone talks about something and all the things they want to lift up. But actually having that space to do it together and then to do your own work I think has been really valuable and the fact it's open to all staff and students has been great. And then the fact of also the idea of a yarning circle where everyone says something and everyone has something to contribute has been just a really good lesson about learning and listening, sorry, about listening as much as anything else. So I think there's so much to be had for it. I think I've already said mine, but um, to embellish more, other than the thing I really wish I had have learned um, right now, is that in late March in Melbourne, you bring a cardigan. <laughs> I have lived here my entire life. <laughs> I have not learned this. Anyway, um, it's more... <laughs> so um, I, I think really for me it's about not being told the truth uh, and, not, and being really educated with a, a, an enormous lie that we perpetuate every day. I still am very angry about uh, and I really wish we would address that. And that lies in two forms for me. It's the one we talked about before, the complicity of our profession and discipline in colonisation and, and all that bad stuff, um, but also uh, the lie about that there was no one and nothing here before and that if we could learn to plan with country, which is what we're going to talk about tomorrow, um, we would do so much better. Thank you. Fantastic product placement. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, I just want to riff off on what Bradley said because the, the thing I've noticed, if you look at a whole lot of very prominent architectural competitions or less prominent ones that have been won of late, uh, they all somehow have embodied some form of Greek understanding of architecture. And it's like, how can, how can buildings that lean into a Greek understanding of an architecture win these competitions in the context of Australia. It's got nothing to do with us. And that's a worrying trend. <laughs> I'm just going to drop that there. Don't really know how to follow that. <laughs> um, I answered this question in the previous session by talking about um, connecting into discussions of professional ethics and I think my answer is the same and I'm appalled to think that ethics isn't taught in architecture schools. Like, when did that drop out? Anyway. I've probably said enough and I don't need a microphone. Really awareness and Thanks. I was going to add something probably more personal to what I think we can all do. I know we need to we also we need to understand the story of colonisation here, but we, I think we also need to understand our own personal connection to that colonial past. My most recent um, migrant relatives came here four generations ago, and 
part of my reconciliation journey is understanding their relationship to the country where they arrived and their displacement from the countries that they came from too. And so through that, I found, I guess, a stronger connection to place here for myself, but also an awareness of their connection to the places that they came from and through how I can have agency here and support conversations like this, how do I bring back a sense of that um, real respect and connection to country for myself and for the other people that I work with. And I'm very lucky to have lots of other people in my profession who want to have those conversations with me. So design yarns that we have as landscape architects and that I have in my work and with others, it's a constant process of learning and re-evaluating how does how am I acting here? What is my privilege that I have as a consequence of other people's suffering? And how do my next actions um, bring that responsibility to the table? Um, I would like to just point out how amazing Bradley is. He's the baby whisperer. This baby has not even stirred the whole two hours that, or three since you got here. That's amazing. <laughs> um, uh, um, maybe this might be a cop-out, but more funding <laughs> would be good. <laughs> Let's put it in the manifesto. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I echo everything everyone said as well. I'm just watching these buildings disappear behind clouds, so I'll go be quick. But I guess I've got, I think it's two points, but who knows. Um, but my first point is fundamentally there is a law to this land that is... Uh, you know, I'm an archaeologist, archaeologists say 65,000 years and we know nothing. Um, so in reality, tens of thousands, if not over 100,000 years old, there's a law to this land. And that this law to this land fundamentally says you are welcome to this land, but when you are welcome, you have obligations. And so if you were here for no matter how long you were here for, you have obligations to this land. And so what I say to the argument about international students, which I often find is just a, oh, I teach international students, I can't engage in this cop-out argument, is you are here, there is a law, you must participate in that law if we are to have any semblance of reconciliation in this place. Um, and then the other thing I would say is something that I hear, and you might would hear it all the time from my ancestors, is when you get things right for us, you get things right for everybody. So Indigenous outcomes are outcomes for everybody. We're not a niche group. This is not a niche field. These are outcomes for everybody. Because for us, at the centre of everything is caring for country and caring for place. And what is caring for country if not truly sustainable outcomes that will see us through these truly terrible, wicked problems that we are all facing in the world today? Thanks, Maddie. That was perfect. Perfect. Thank you, everyone. Um, I'm going to release you all from your chairs before that comes. Thank you. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.